Richie Hunt, thank you very much for joining me on the Fit for Golf podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm really good, Richie. Uh, Thank you. It's my pleasure to have you. You're someone I've been following in the golf analytics world for a few years now. After I first came across your golf hypnosis book at the end of uh, a PGA Tour season, can you please tell us about your background and how you got into golf analytics? Well, I started uh, to play golf when I was 11 years old, and shortly after I started to develop, I became one of the better junior golfers in the state of New York. And uh, when I was 10 years old, I I was a big fan of baseball before I became got into golf. And one of the things I would do is I would read uh, these yearly annual almanacs on baseball and football. And then eventually I came across uh, a writer by the name of Bill James, who is basically the godfather of baseball analytics, which is spawned into analytics across sports and he had a book called the historical baseball abstract so i got that when i was 10 years old and you know there's a lot of it i didn't quite understand at the time but i could kind of slowly piece things together and i would ask teachers uh, about stuff that i didn't quite understand from a math perspective and you know when i started to get into playing golf i could kind of see that Typical stats like greens and regulation or putts per round were uh, very incomplete or inaccurate or, or just inherently flawed. And I always wanted to be able to have more of an advanced uh, analytical approach to the game of golf, but there was no technology available to provide that. So I uh, ended up playing college golf. And then I uh, had a degree in marketing with a minor in applied mathematics. And I started working to, uh, as my job, I uh, started working into uh, analytical work for, for, for a living. And after college, I basically quit the game for about eight years. And then I got back into the game and I really wanted to to know more about if they made any advance advancements in technology to provide more of an analytical approach to the game. And that's when I came across uh, Mark Sweeney, who is the inventor of Aimpoint. And he has a, a statistical background and he was telling me about how the tour has shot link data now and, uh, he knew what I did for a living, so he thought I would be a, a, a person that could really uh, take take the ball and run with it. And I started to uh, do that, and I, and I did have a blog at the time, and I started to uh, write blog posts on my findings of the statistical part of the game. And from there, I started to work with uh, – different tour players. My first tour player that full-time tour player that I worked with was uh, a guy by the name of Daniel Summerhays. And I got in contact with him 
through his caddy, uh, Nick Jones, who's been a, a great help in my career as far as uh, golf analytics goes. And we started to see success right away uh, with Daniel's play. He started, he had like a 380% increase in uh, uh, earnings per event uh, within two years of working together. And then I started to work with more and more tour players. And at the same time, I decided to write my own type of version of uh, baseball historical abstract for golf. And I named it Pro Golf Synopsis. So I started to write those uh, pro golf synopsis books on an annual basis and continue to work with tour players and some companies like Fujikura Golf and started to write on Golf WRX. And I have a very uh, popular annual uh, prediction column for the Masters where I've pre- shortlisted the, uh, the winner for the Masters for the last uh, since 2014, and uh, and it's just kind of grown from there. Yeah, that's fantastic. What year was it when you got in, you got back into golf and started working in pro with pros? I'm wondering how that coincided with some of Mark Brody's work and the release of Every Shot Counts. And was that an influence, or did you have to come up with some of your own things before that came out? Yeah, I got back into golf in 2009, but I was just playing at the time. And then around 2010 is when I started to see that there was uh, shot link data and started using it from there. And I created uh, my own analytics. Uh, Dr. Mark Brody at the time, he had written some papers uh you know, peer-reviewed research papers on the subject. Um, I gained a little bit of insight from there. I remember when I first saw strokes gain putting, the methodology he used was something more or less that I would use because coming from that uh, baseball analytics background where you uh, set the – the baseline is the average and then you try to determine how well a person performs versus the average. And in baseball, they have something called wins above replacement. So they can tell, like, say if you're a second baseman in baseball, how many more wins you would have over the average player that plays second base. And uh, so, so what Mark Brody did a lot of it was just very much in line with what, they've been doing in baseball analytics for years. And now that they're doing in all these different sports, like football, soccer, hockey, and all that stuff. And excellent. Yeah. And I just, you know, I started the first pro golf synopsis. I gave away for free on in 2011. And then after that, I started to charge $10 for a, a copy. And I created, you know, it was an annual version of, a pro golf synopsis with some new information and just, just adding on the information that I had from before, or sometimes I had to uh, correct some of the data because we, what I originally uh, found out was not quite as accurate as it needed to be. So. Very good. And that comes out as an ebook yearly. Yes. Correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's in a PDF. Yeah. File. Perfect. Before we finish up later, we'll, touch on where people can find that so they can keep an eye out uh, for upcoming seasons. 
when a player contacts you for help, what is the process you go through to assess their game? I guess, what are some of the key things that you need to know? Well, I try to get a an idea of there's a bit of coaching involved with doing my work. It's not just straight, just throw the numbers at somebody. Um, you know, I, I try to get a feel for what they know about the analytics of the game and what they feel about their own game. Uh, and I always say this, you know, the first seven players that I worked with, I counted this, they all said the same thing. They said they wanted to be the best wedge player on tour. And I had two of them that were essentially already the were top five wedge players on tour. So, uh, but they didn't even know it. They they thought they were not, they thought they were middle of the pack. And then I also explained to them that not only you're the best wedge player on tour, but you can gain more strokes in other areas of the game if you just improve by a uh, by less incrementally, but you'll actually gain more strokes on the field. Uh, so from there, I also look at um, their data in each part of the game. And I, and again, I'm not trying to throw just data out there. I'm trying to tell a story with the data. And, you know, we look at their scoring metrics, not only on, par fours, par fives, and par threes. That also helps a lot with kind of telling a story of you, you can kind of derive, let's say if you have a player that plays well on the par fours and par threes but struggles on the par fives, it's you can usually kind of deduct what's going on with their game uh, even without looking at the rest of the data, but you just look at the rest of the data just to make sure. But uh and then we just go into data with driving, approach shots, uh, short game around the green, putting. And I also uh, have data where uh, I calculate each of their shots uh, from the fairway or par three tee boxes with irons. And I look at where, you know, the distance of the shot, where the pin is located, and then the result of where the shot is hit and you can see patterns of where their misses tend to be or uh, where their big misses tend to be, or let's say they have, uh, you know, on shots that are, uh, are on pins that are located on the left third of the green, they may uh, tend to hit poles on those shots. So uh, versus, you know, if it's in the middle quarter of the green or the, or the middle um, or the right third of the green, they may just be fine. It just might be that uh, left third of the green, they may struggle on those pin locations. And if you unearth something like that, that a player struggles more with left pins, is it usually just a case of, I guess, bringing that up and having a conversation with them and making them aware of it? And then it's, it's something that they can work on themselves or do you need to talk to their instructors or... Do you often sort of have maybe more, I guess, specific ideas why that's occurring mm-hmm. based on other things you've learned about their game? Well, I try to get everybody involved with the player that's on their team. I, I'm trying to get everybody on the same wavelength. That way you don't get, you know, if you t- if you work with a player and their instructor, but then the caddy may be, you know, be left in the dark and then have questions and then that, you know, it, it just – 
disturbs everything that you're trying to do. So, and I'm more than glad to work with caddies, golf instructors, managers, accountants, you know, (laughs) whatever needs help. Um, And, you know, and just educate them on the subject. As far as let's say some player struggles on uh, left pins that are located on the left third of the green, it's typically because of their ball flight and uh, they probably are hitting a fade with their irons, which is fine. And you might just need to be a little more cognizant that, uh, you know, because you hit fades with your irons, you're more likely to struggle on pins on the left side of the green. So if you're, uh, let's say you're missing left of the green on left pins, you're short-siding yourself. So you need to be a little more conservative and just kind of accept the fact that, yeah, you're not going to hit it as close on pins that are on the left third of the green. Uh, but don't short side yourself in, in the process. You know, don't try to overdo something that you don't have the ability to do. Yeah, allow the ball fade away from yeah. the flag yeah. towards the center mm-hmm. of the green or even the right side of the green. Yeah, rather than risking starting yeah. it over the left yeah. side of the rough or whatever, and it not cutting back. And all the and you know you may struggle to hit it close on pins that are on the left side of the green, but then you're more likely to hit it closer on pins on the right third of the green. So it kind of just balances out. Yeah. And then a matter of not shooting yourself in the foot on the ones that don't suit and and waiting, Mm -hmm. waiting for the ones that do fall within your good variance. Mm -hmm. When looking at pros who have successful careers on the PGA tour, is there a lot of commonality between players' profiles or is there lots of different ways that players have been able to have successful careers? Well, there's a lot of different ways that players had successful careers. Uh, you know, Zach Johnson is a very different player than, say, Bubba Watson, and they're very different players from Jordan Spieth. Uh, the big commonalities you start to see – with the very top players is usually speed. Uh, the top players have generally have had more speed throughout the history of golf uh, compared to their uh, peers at that time. Uh, you know, Bobby Jones was one of the longest players on tour. Ben Hogan, before he got injured, was one of the longest players on tour. Same with Sam Snead, Jack Nicklaus, Seve Ballesteros. One of the big things I see with the great players is that they usually hit it really long and they putt really well. Um, but there's also different ways to do it. If you're a great iron player and a great putter, you're probably going to be quite successful, even if you don't drive it quite as well as some guys do. Like Nick Faldo, he wasn't a great driver of the ball, but his iron play and putting when his prime was superb. And, you know, he was great at getting up and down. Tyre Woods had a lot of issues with his driver during certain parts of his career, but he was the greatest iron player ever. He was one of the best putters for his time, and he had a great short game around the green, and he could just manage his way around the course. Uh, There's a lot of ways to do it. There are some – 
commonalities or, or very similarities, particularly with long irons on tour. Uh, if you're good from 175 to 225 yards, you're usually going to have a, a pretty consistent career. Uh, but, you know, there's things that can uh, cause that to get out of balance. There was a player uh, 10 about, basically about 10 or 15 years ago named Charles Warren. Uh, he was a little guy. He's only he probably weighed about, I don't think he weighed more than a buck 50. And he crushed the golf ball and he hit it very accurately off the tee. And he was a great iron player from 175 to 225. But his putting and short game around the green was just so poor, he couldn't you know, keep his car after a while. And the same thing kind of happened with Boo Weekly. You know, he was great ball striker, but his putting and short game around the green was just so bad. You know, he, you know, he was still able to make a career and win and win tournaments, but, uh, you know, I'll, but he wasn't as successful as say a, a Ben Crane who wasn't as uh, a good of a ball striker, but he was, solid all around and he was a really great putter and short game player for a, a good length of his career. Yeah. Would it maybe be the case of if you have an extreme weakness, it just makes it extremely difficult because you mm-hmm. need to make up for it somewhere else yeah. and to make up for it by that much on a, at a level where everybody is, you know, pretty good at everything. It's going to be a big challenge. Oh yeah. And you know, one of the things that there also there becomes a bit of a, a psychological uh, issue that comes with that because what I find a lot of players struggle with is that they get bored with their games and it's always the same thing year in and year out for them where they, they do certain things well and they do certain things poorly and then they decide to uh, make changes to what they do well because they're just they think that that might be the key to them getting actually even better. And what they have to do is they have to work on their weaknesses. You get certain players that you know hit the ball great, but they're just so poor around the greens, and then what happens usually a lot of times is that they'll do one or two things. They'll either work way too much on their weaknesses and then their ball striking in this example will uh, fall off because they're just not putting the time in and they're not playing complimentary golf or they just start to work on their swing and they start to change their swing because they're just, they don't know what else to do and they kind of get bored with their games. And then that was the, that was the last thing that needed to be changed. They needed to kind of take their weaknesses and make, and make them, you know, at least manageable. And then they, they would see vast improvements in their scores. Uh, but then they, but they went the opposite route. Yeah. That's very interesting. Like there's lots of, it's obviously primarily amateur golfers listen to this and I'm regularly asking people on Twitter, especially what they're working on. And we're almost always drawn to these are my weaknesses. So many people are keeping stats now yeah. and it's a case uh, and it can't, it's, it's almost like trying to, you know, balance a bunch of different plates. How do we put time into yeah. what we know our weaknesses are? 
without taking so much time away from mm-hmm. the things we're okay at that they don't get worse. And then you can improve the weakness, mm-hmm. but have the same drop off in a strength and you're kind of left with the same scores, yes. just doing it a different way. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Um. So obviously you're, you're digging into the data as your main job, Richie, but you clearly have a really good understanding of the game of golf, how it's played mm-hmm. from a player's point of view too when you've identified that players have a weakness that needs to be worked on and at least brought up to a manageable level, have you done much thinking or suggesting in terms of how a player might actually practice this element of the game? Or do you more leave that to the coach and the player? I more or less leave that to the coach and the player. Um, Because everybody's different and I'm not there with them uh, as often as say the instructor is. And so, and I also don't know what they're quite working on. And I'm not, uh, I don't delve into things like, you know, swing instruction or anything like that with the player. Uh, if they do ask me for advice on maybe they want it, maybe they want to change and see a different swing coach. You know, I know I have a broad network of instructors that I know of. And, you know, I've suggested certain instructors to players uh, and, you know, then they can talk to that instructor and work whatever out they need to work out. But uh, yeah, I usually leave that to the player and the instructor. This might be hard to, to get fully right or to see a clear pattern in, but in your experience, have you been able to see any patterns from, players going to certain instructors and their games changing in a certain way? Yeah. I mean, I see that a lot with, uh, uh, putting coaches, you know, I, I like putting coaches like David Orr and John Graham. I trust them. If a player was telling me that they were going to go see either one of them, I would trust them because, the, the the results that I've seen in those players, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding with them. Same thing with aim point. Uh, consistently see players that go to aim point, they improve strokes gain putting in anywhere from three to 12 months, which is, you know, that's, uh, that's in all things considered, that's a relatively quick time to uh, see a significant improvement. Uh, with swing coaches, that's a little bit more of a <laughs> difficult uh, thing to to deal with because it's a bit of opening Pandora's box. And also, you don't know when exactly the players start working with a swing coach because a lot of players, they will work with a swing coach and then, you know, two months down the road, they'll see another swing coach for like a couple of weeks and kind of tinker with that. And then they'll go back to their old swing coach. And you don't know if the uh, player is listening to everything the swing coach has to say. A lot of times they'll listen to half the things they say and throw out the other. Yeah. Um, <coughs> how, how common is it for your analysis of a player's game to lead to experimentation with different equipment? Uh, it's a little bit rare. I, uh, years ago with Ben Crane, we switched up uh, 
he had too big of a gap between his uh, three wood to his uh, to his to his longest iron, which I believe was like a five iron at the time, and so he um, experimented with. Uh, a four iron for a while and then some hybrids and then I think like a five wood or seven wood. And, uh, and sometimes I think more of the experimentation is usually with driver shafts. Uh, I, I do a lot of work with Fujikura, but you know, a player is more than welcome to use whatever shaft they want, but you know, the, the players on tour are very, usually very keen on, looking at their driving data because they have track man on most of the holes on tour. And so they can see what's going on in tournament play versus when they're just out there on the practice range or, uh, at some, you know, hitting studio. Yeah. I was thinking maybe about the ball as well. I know Mm -hmm. I've seen you post some stuff about, you know, players being able to hit certain windows and spin rates and things like that to hold greens. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if the ball is something that might come into the equation, you know, if a player is struggling with approach play, maybe. Yeah. And that's something I haven't really ever encountered, but that's, that's a good point. Um, uh, yeah. That's something I've never really encountered, but it's a, it's a, it's an interesting concept. It's, and that's something with the launch angles and spin rates and ball speed. Uh, that's something that I've just, explored into in the past year because there's not a lot of answers as far as approach shots uh in the game of in golf instruction period you know like i can go on to a good golf instructor can go on to say track man and look at a track man look at a player's track man numbers and say, and kind of gauge, yeah, these are good track man numbers with a driver. Uh, and this guy is probably a good driver because of look at his track man numbers. Same thing if they went on to like a Sam putt lab, but with iron play, we don't really have those answers yet. And so I, like the past year, I did a lot of research on iron play and kind of, came up with a little bit more answers as what makes a, a good iron player versus a, a an average iron player versus a poor iron player. Yeah. Are you able to, are you allowed to share? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll give away some I'm going to put it in <laughs> the next version of pro golf synopsis. Uh, the big thing is the most strokes are lost throughout the course of a season for a tour player. They're a lost on uh, the short push side miss. So it's a short right shot uh, that they hit uh, for a right-handed golfer and a short left shot hmm. for for the left-hand golfer. And it pretty much has been exclusively to a man. And if uh, – I'm trying to see how I want to explain it. If the it's a, it's a frequency issue, is that's a common miss for golfers on tour, but it's also uh, the the variance as far as those are typically their worst miss per shot. So they may have like say they might hit that shot 
and lose, you know, minus 0.3 strokes every time they hit that shot versus let's say they hit a short pull, they may lose minus 0.25 strokes every time they hit the short pull. Uh, But sometimes, you know, you might run into a player that, let's say, long and left, long a long pull, they might miss – uh, that might result into uh, minus 0.4 strokes loss per shot, but they're hitting far more of those short pushes than they are hitting the long pull. Yep. And uh, so the, it's the short push that really hurts players and the best players, the best iron players on tour hit those the least amount and they lose the least amount of strokes for every time that they hit those shots. Okay. Because it's still finishing up closer to the hole than when Mm -hmm. the the not as good an iron player hits it. And, you know, I talked to uh, Dr. Sasha McKenzie about that and I posited the theory that it may be a, uh, that's might be where rate of closure comes into play. And that's, how fast the uh, uh, the face angle is closing into impact. And my theory was if you had a fast rate of closure in your swing, that means you probably have more uh, the, the face, the club face has to has, has more degrees. It has to close to get to square. And what my theory is, is that, Perhaps with players that have a fast rate of closure, what's going on is they can't quite get that face to close enough to get to square uh, at impact. And that's why and it's leaving open, and that's why it's going short and pushing out uh, from relative to where they are located at. So, And his response was he goes, he thinks that's a uh, valid hypothesis. Yeah, that'll that'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Knowing Sasha, he'll he'll try and get some work done on that to find out yeah. anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think one of the reasons iron play is maybe slightly lesser known in terms of what goes into great iron play compared to driving or putting might be that we hit a much more different variety of iron shots. We get different slopes, different lies, and sometimes we're you know trying to hit the ball a different distance, whereas. With driving, it's always off a flat tee box, mm-hmm. off a tee. We can basically do the same thing every time. Putting is always, you know, green speeds are really similar. It's the same lie. It's a much shorter, more similar stroke. Mm-hmm. Whereas with irons, we get, you know, rough, bunkers, uh, fairway, different slopes mm-hmm. and lies and that kinds of thing. Yeah, I, I, I think that's part of it. I also think that, you know, with driving, it's, there's distance is such a positive part of driving uh, where, you know, so you can hit it. Essentially the further you hit your driver, the better off you're going to typically be. Um, But with iron play, it's about distance control and directional control. And so I think that, that element of being able to hit it the right amount of distance and also have it uh, with directional control. I think it just, it, it, it makes it a little more nuanced than driving. Um, 
you know, a guy, a player like Kyle Berkshire, he's hits it so far for the most part, he's going to hit a lot of drives that are that are going to gain a lot of strokes versus the field because he, if he can just keep it in play, uh, you know, he could have a 50-yard range that he could easily keep it in play on a, on a hole and just blast it out there. And, yeah, he might be in the rough, but, you know, he's 450 yards <laughs> from the T, whereas, you know, the average player might, you know, even like an average tour player might be hitting it, you know, 300 and still finding the rough, you know, 55% of the time or so. And, uh, but with, I think it's just, there's much more nuance because, you know, even things like being able to hold the green, you know, you want to have the certain right type of spin rate, uh, but you know, if you can have if you have too much spin, you know the ball won't travel far enough for for certain players to get to get to the right distance from uh, the hole. Have you seen any relationship with players who have very high club head speeds or ball speeds, basically high speed players having trouble with controlling? distances with approach shots whether that be irons or wedges yeah you start to see that a little bit more with high speed players and uh and on shots from say 140 yards or less uh but you can also see that from guys that are probably you know average club head speed but they uh they strike the ball well from outside say 150 yards but then they may struggle from inside 150 yards and usually i uh what i see from those players that they tend to have more shaft lean which can be a benefit on longer shots uh but can be a detriment on shorter shots because it's a little more difficult uh to control the distance when you have more shaft lean on a uh on a shorter approach shot versus you know, say a 200 yard approach shot, uh, the shaft lean can be an advantage because, you know, you're not going to be able to quite control the distance with such precision from 200 yards as you would from, say, 120 yards. Yeah. And the distance control doesn't matter quite as much because yeah. a, a shot that gains strokes could be probably. F- five or eight yards long or short yeah. but if the strike has been good and it's directionally okay probably if it's hitting the green mm-hmm. i'm guessing from 200 or more it's probably a positive shot most of the time whereas from 70 or 80 or that inside 140 range the distance control needs to be really precise to gain strokes yeah and i was reading an article uh that my friend uh, chris como did he, he was doing it on um putting uh, if, if the ball was wet and if the club face was wet versus if they were dry or if there was a combination of one being dry and, and the ball being wet. Uh, and one of the things they came away with is that uh, lesser spin on longer shots uh, helps with control. So if you had that forward shaft lean and you're generating less spin, you can get a little more directional control with it 
but with and also distance control with it. But uh, on shorter shots, uh, you need that spin to uh, help better control the ball. Okay. So what sort of distance approximately would you be saying where the high amount of shaft lean can turn into maybe a disadvantage? I would say probably less than 140 yards. Okay. And would you say that that's primarily a problem for tour pros or it's a problem for amateurs as well? Because I'm just thinking of the people listening to this who, you know, might have, because we're, we're talking here about the ranges among yeah, that's tour true. players that you've been looking at. I don't want the 15 handicapper listening here saying, you know, I need to get my hands further behind yeah, the ball. Yeah, no, this is for tour, pro, tour players. Yeah. Uh, as we know, most uh, higher handicaps in particular, they don't, they don't have any shaft lean. So, yeah. Uh, that's just something I wanted to make clear for the people listening so they're not going yeah. out in the course this weekend and, and hitting a lot of drop kicks. And it's all, you know, I always say this about the golf swing in particular. It's, it's not if you do something, it's more how you do it. You know, if you can have a ton of shaft lean, but if you're doing it in a, in a fashion that's not efficient, that's, that's going to produce – it's not going to produce the same quality shots as, as the tour player who has a lot of shaft lean, but, but they produce it in a more efficient manner. Of course. Are there any common misconceptions in terms of how much importance people put on certain parts of the game versus others? Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, wedge play is very overrated. Um, Hitting fairways is extremely overrated. Uh, and people also, they have this conception that if you're going, if you increase your club speed, uh, that you're automatically going to uh, be much more inaccurate. Like it's like they think there's like a one to one relationship between. If I increase my clubhead speed by this much, I'm going to be just as much as inaccurate. And that's really not true. We see that uh, from a study I did oh, about 10 years ago using TrackMan, uh, we, saw, we found a very strong correlation between clubhead speed and uh, USGA handicaps. Uh, and there's been other similar studies to that that have found the same thing. Uh, and a lot of times it boils down to is that if you're increasing your clubhead speed, you're, you're usually improving your mechanics along with it. And part of those improving those mechanics means you're hitting the ball, you know, more accurately. Now the geometry is such that you may miss more fairways because you have less angle for error, but. In the end, what's going on is if you want to look at it from a strokes gain perspective, if you want to look at it from my uh, algorithm that creates what I call driving effectiveness perspective, if you hit it, if you increase your distance by, say, 30 yards, there's a strong likelihood you're going to be a much better driver of the ball and you're just going to shoot lower scores. Okay, that's great. So, Wedges and hitting fairways are two of the most overvalued um, mm-hmm. areas of the game in tour golf. 
Are there any others? And what are some that people maybe sleep on a little bit, but are very important when you go through the data? Um, I think the when you start to get to, let's say, the less than five handicap player range, they tend to hit too many – they tend to lay up off the tee too much. Um, that's a, that's another big one. Uh, putting outside of 15 feet is way overvalued. Uh, for amateurs, uh, it's more like putting from three to about 12 feet. Uh, for tour players, it's more about putts from five to 12 feet. Uh, once you get outside 15 feet, you're really making a putt is becoming so much more about luck than actual skill. Now, avoiding three putts from outside 15 feet is much more about skill than luck, but actually making the putt outside 15 feet is much more about luck than skill. Um, so for Sorry, for putting then, would it be short range and then also – so short range to increase the amount you hold? Yeah. But then also speed control from longer ranges Correct. where yes. you're not trying to hold it, but it's about three-putt avoidance. Yeah. Ignore the middle range. Yeah. 12, 12 to 25 probably isn't doing much. Yeah, and it always that's surprises that. me when I hear about people and they talk about lag putting. I – I've never met a good putter that has always that's talked about lag putting. They've always there. It, it doesn't make a difference if they're 80 feet away, they're trying to hold it. <laughs> and because if you pick a small target, well, then your misses are going to be smaller. Um, but you're correct. Yes. We're trying to uh, get the, to from outside 15 feet, you're trying to make, reduce the size of your misses and as far as uh putting if you really want to uh see improvement in your putting it's going to be more about making putts from say for the amateur three to 12 feet okay excellent and if you're struggling from on putts inside five feet it's typically because you're hitting the ball too firm and if it's not that then it's you're playing too much break. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned earlier that 175 to 225 yards mm -hmm. approaches tend to be really important metrics for the tour player. Yeah. Often when watching TV or, or reading articles about golf or just listening to fans talk about golf, they're all talking about how one-dimensional golf has become, mm -hmm. that it's drive down the fairway, flick a wedge onto the green and try and hold the pot. Mm -hmm. But that would be counter to what you've said here in that wedges are vastly overrated mm -hmm. and 175 to 225 is hugely important. So where people basically just have a misperception of how many wedge shots we get to hit per round oh, yeah. versus how many shots we need to, versus how many shots tour pros, not us, need to hit from 175 to 225. Can you yeah. dig into that a little bit? Yeah, it's it's a common misperception because you know the tv networks they want to show the shots that almost you know that they almost hold or you know they have the nice backspin and you know they zip by the cup and those are going to be wedge shots but what they don't 
show are is the guy that's playing a long par four and he's missed the fairway and he's got a 195 yard shot from the rough and he hits it to 12 feet. Well, that was just a phenomenal shot right there, but they don't, you know, they may show it, but they don't uh, rave about it or anything like that. They're just like, you know, he hit a good shot, but they don't understand how many, uh, strokes that he gained from hitting that shot because most commonly that shot's going to be probably miss the green in a bunker, short-sided, and it's going to cause bogey. And now this player has a chance to actually make birdie. Uh, Even hitting that shot to 35 or 40 yeah. feet. It's probably a great shot. Yeah, you know? It's a really good <laughs> shot. Yeah. But on TV, it's like, meh, like yeah. whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not it's not dancing by the hole um, and, and getting the viewer enticed. Yeah, and they show uh, that a lot. You know, they're, they're going to show the long putts that are made. And, of course. You know, and so then people start to think in their minds that it's all about putting, but it's, you know, that guy who made the 35-foot putt, you know, that might have been his first putt he's made outside 25 feet in the last six tournaments he's played. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's not why he's uh, near the leaderboard. It's because, you know, he's struck the ball really well that week and he's made a lot more of the shorter putts than he normally does. Yeah. No, that's excellent. Um, just a couple more, Rich. I don't want to keep you too long. Um what advice do you have for amateurs who want to do a better job of analyzing their game? Obviously, there's all the various shot trackers that kind of keen golfers are aware of now. Is there any in particular you you like, or is there anything else that maybe is lesser known that that you think is good, or maybe even some stats that none of these trackers automatically keep, but you think are really important for golfers to to be aware of and stay on top of? Well, I think if you're serious about improving your game and you want to have a bit of a analytical approach to it, I think one of the things you need to do is you need to get on some type of quality launch monitor and you need to do that for your speed so you can understand, you know, if you're if you're losing speed, if you're sustaining your speed, if you're increasing your speed, uh, because as I said before, it showed that there is a strong correlation between for amateurs between their speed and their handicap. Now you might get the occasional outlier. Like I have a friend of mine; he's he generates about 120 mile per hour clubhead speed, but he's about a 20 handicap. But he was a Division One basketball player who also uh, plays a lot of softball. He's just a, a great athlete who can figure out how to, you know, generate speed with a club in his hand. But as far as controlling it, he has no idea. But yeah, the big thing is get yourself on a on a launch monitor not only for speed but also to understand what your true distances with the irons are. And that can also help you uh, better gap your uh, equipment 
better and you know you're probably going to want to be gapped more uh tightly with the um with like the longer irons than you are with say the wedges uh because if you've got a uh 170 yard shot in your hand uh, 170 yard shot and you don't have the right club it's going to be difficult to say take like a five iron and 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 try to take something off it or try to really horse a a six iron versus if you were a hundred yards away uh, you know you could hit that shot more easily if you didn't have quite the the correct uh, club in your hand and also the a bad shot from 170 yards is going to cost you more strokes than a bad shot from 100 yards most of the time. Um, and depending on your distance, I guess you might have more shots from that range yeah. also. Yeah, that's that. I, I think something I've seen with, with amateur players a lot is they get really hung up on, you know, the different wedge matrices. You know, they're yeah. going through, I have three swings with my four wedges, mm-hmm. here are my 12 carry distances, et cetera. And it's like, great, you might have three shots around Mm -hmm. in that range of distances. But when you look at your second shots on par fives, your par three tee shots, and some of the medium or longer par fours, you end up with tons of shots from like this 150 to, you know, 220 range or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And um, so after the launch monitors, you know, these plenty of other uh, good programs that get involved with, uh, Arcos, I think, makes makes a very good uh, uh, shot tracking program. I know uh, Mark Brody has his own program. I, I, I'm, I forget the name of it now. Golf Metrics. Yes. Uh, and there's also Scott Fawcett. He has a uh, decade program, which is more involved with strategy, which I think is very important. I think if you – are serious, it would be imperative to at least familiarize yourself with how to use Google Earth so you can plan out the golf courses and, you know, where we want to aim and how the course plays. You know, there was one course I used to play uh, frequently that was where it was close, pretty close to where my dad used to live. And I never looked at it on Google Maps or Google Earth. And uh, so I would always play it uh, what looked like it was more the center of the fairway. But you had to head over this uh, wetland. And the wetland, if you went over the center of the fairway, it was it would extend to about 250-yard carry. Versus if you played it down the left side – you only had about a 180-yard carry, but you couldn't okay. tell that from the tee box. Yeah, yeah. And then when I looked at it on Google Earth, I said, oh, my God, I can't believe, you know, yeah. I missed that. So, yeah, that's – so, yeah, Scott Fawcett with his decade program is very good. Um, and I use – if you don't want to pay the money for uh, for a stat tracking program, and, and you know, some of them are, are a bit cumbersome – uh, I have uh, uh, what I call the five-two score, which is in my pro golf synopsis. I'll try to give a Reader's Digest version of it. It's basically you give yourself 
three points if you have an eagle putt that's within five paces of the hole, 15 feet of the hole. Uh, two points if it's a birdie putt within five paces. And you give yourself one point if it's uh, if you have a par save within two paces of the hole, which is six feet. Uh, if you do not have a par save uh, within two paces, then you take away three points. And the scoring system is labeled out in Pro Golf Synopsis. And what I find about that is it helps you uh, understand whether your ball striking versus your putting is the issue. Mm. And um, but also what I like about it is it's very easy to keep the score. And even if you forget to track the score after the hole, you can go back in the clubhouse and you should be able to kind of remember what you had and you can kind of figure out from there and it helps you. It's just a quick and easy version of, of yeah. way to kind of determine how well you putted versus how well you struck the ball. Very nice. Um, are there any lesser known players you expect to have breakouts in the coming season or the near future? Um, well, I, I like Chris Goddard quite a bit. Um, but he, I, don't, I wouldn't say he's unknown, but I think he's got a lot of potential. Um, I really like a lot of the metrics that Davis Riley had. Um, I think he's potentially a breakout star. And, uh, you know, right now I'm kind of in the, in the throes of getting um, Pro Golf Synopsis completed. So I haven't looked at too much of the first three tournaments of data. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I always look for guys that hit it a long way and, uh, they don't lay up too much off the tee and they're very good from 175 to 225. If you can do those things, you're usually going to have some potential to, to have, have a good year. Excellent. And just one final question, Richie, the most important of the whole episode Statistically, can you tell us why Europe are going to win the Ryder Cup in Rome? <laughs> well, I don't know who's going to be on the team, so <laughs> with the live tour and everything. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the Europe Europeans. The thing about the Ryder Cup is, when I've looked at the data for a long time, is something about match play, short game around the green tends to show up more. Uh, and a lot of the Europeans, uh, particularly the, the Swedish, I don't know if something in the water there, have, have had very good short games around the grain. So, and, uh, you know, Europe, uh, you know, if, if they get the right team in, you know, th that's certainly a possibility why they can uh, – not only beat us but beat them soundly so we'll have to see yeah we'll come back to you for uh mm -hmm. for a more detailed uh, sure. prediction when the teams mm -hmm. are, are announced that might be a fun uh, yeah absolutely writer cup preview podcast yes, i look forward to it richie that's fabulous information thank you very much for your time just before we go can you let us know where people can find you on social media and also where they can find your pro golf synopsis yes uh my 
Twitter handle is Richie3Jack, which is the number three. So it's Richie3Jack. I also have Instagram under Pro Golf Synopsis. And lastly, I, I haven't posted on a blog in a while, but uh, my blog is 3jack.blogspot.com. That's the number three. So it's 3jack.blogspot.com. Okay, Richie, that's great. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to getting this one out. All right, Mike, thank you very much.